Comedy icon Margaret Cho and her podcast from Erios called The Margaret Cho brings you a weekly intimate conversation with an eclectic range of guests from stand-ups to drag queens to rock stars and activists. The conversations are organic, hilarious, and she never shies away from subjects like race, sexuality, or politics. You can listen to The Margaret Show wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, it is Monday, July 20th, and this is the podcast version of Q, the CBC radio show. My name is Tom Power. Big day. Big day. If I was Ed Sullivan, I'd say really big. Oh, actually, I heard someone say really big shoe over the weekend, you know, like an Ed Sullivan impression. And I said, Ed Sullivan. And they went, who? And I realized that impression has just gone somewhere else. And I sounded like I was 7,000 years old for recognizing it. Point being that the Dixie Chicks, a.k.a. the Chicks, are on the show today. Uh, we were so excited to have them on, all three of them, Emily, Natalie, and Marty. And we start off by talking about why they are the chicks and no longer the D- Dixie Chicks. And then we just go through their career. We talk about them as a blue – I got to nerd out about them as a bluegrass band. And then we talk about you know what their aspirations were, how it got the biggest thing in the world, their comments about George W. Bush, which sort of totaled their career, coming back with the Not Ready to Make Nice song, winning all these Grammys, and now their first album in 14 years, Gaslighter. So – it's sort of a wide-ranging conversation with uh, three of the most transformative country pop artists of all time, at least in my opinion. I'm pretty excited about that. After that, Adrian Tomina's graphic memoir about prioritizing your family and not your work, and then Hamza Haq on his new show, Transplant. All right. show starts now. Grab your cowboy hat, fashion your nearest bandana into a t-shirt. Don't worry, in this imaginary scenario, you definitely know how to do that. We're going back to 2003, when the Dixie Chicks, now called the Chicks, dominated the airwaves. It takes the shape of a place out of west. But what it holds for her, she hasn't yet guessed. She needs wide open spaces. At the time, the Dixie Chicks were on their top of the world tour, and they kind of were on top of the world. But it took just one show to change all that. It was days before the Iraq war began. They were doing a show in London, in England. And Natalie Maines, the singer of The Chicks, made a pretty politically charged comment on stage, saying she was against the war and ashamed of George W. Bush, the U.S. president at the time. Since that moment, The Chicks have been the living definition of sticking to your guns, because for the last 17 years, they've been boycotted, harassed, experienced tons of public scrutiny. But they've also been one of the best-selling female groups of all time, and they've influenced women, musicians, country musicians all over the world. The Chicks have just released their first album in 14 years called Gaslighter. And I'm happy to say that you're about to hear Natalie Maines, Marty McGuire, and Emily Strayer from The Chicks. Marty, I'll start with you. Why the decision uh, at this moment to drop Dixie from the name? We've been wanting to drop Dixie for a while. It's just been feeling a little bit uncomfortable just knowing what that word in the States conjures up for people and that maybe it's hurtful to a group of people. 
Um, it's, it, that wasn't intentional when we picked the name. We were children, basically teenagers, and we were the Dixie Chickens and then shortened it to Chicks and got a lot of flack about being Chicks. But it was, it was definitely time to drop the Dixie. Let me talk a little bit about the history of the band here, because I'm, I'm really excited to talk to you today. So back in uh, 89, when the band first started really kind of moving, as you mentioned, the Dixie Chickens became the Dixie Chicks, playing a lot of bluegrass music. Um, Emily, what was the goal with the music at that point? Uh, well, 89, that'd be pre-Natalie. So at the time, the goals for the band were, number one, to get off the street corner and get a gig, get a business card, you know, little baby steps at that point. We were just happy to be playing and making money doing it. Marty got to quit college. And um, once Natalie joined the band, we felt like the sky was a limit, you know, because of her voice. What year, what year did you guys not have to have like another job? Like what, what year was it your full-time gig? I never, well, I had like a teenage job, but I never really had a job. Cause I was 16 to like 21. We were making enough money by the time I was like 21 that I could, live on my own. And like, how was it for bluegrass back then? Because I think that like, even now, bluegrass is not great in terms of women in the music, you know? Like, there's a lot being made of the fact that Kristen Scott Benson is up for Banjo Player of the Year at the IBMA this year. And like, years and years ago, Alison Brown won it, but she's the only woman to ever win Banjo Player of the Year. You know, Molly Tuttle just won for Guitar Player of the Year, what, like two years ago? Like, well, you know, what was it like being an all-women bluegrass band back then? Like, we weren't making the bluegrass circuit. We weren't going to the... IBMA is uh, maybe we went one year, but um, as soon as we got drums in the band, which was pretty early, <laughs> uh, we were ousted from being truly bluegrass by the purists. So, um, no, I think we had our mindset a little bit more on Nashville and country music. And, and Natalie, when you joined the band, did you automatically see, oh, my God, there's there's a potential here to be the biggest band in the entire world? Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> but really, like, did you see it as did you see it as? I this had this has a tremendous potential at least. Yes, I mean that's what made me join the band because I was not uh, a country music listener. Definitely didn't know like Western music or much bluegrass. Um, but I was very impressed with their talent and knew that that was special to have um, females that uh, played their instruments as good as any guy out there. And um, so I thought okay, the three of us, I did think it could be something. Yeah, with Natalie, you just wanted to get out of that test the next day. Uh, yeah, I had an um, economics test in college the next day that I, once I joined the band, I didn't have to study for that anymore. <laughs> oh, how convenient. You didn't have to, you didn't have to worry about it. This is all, this has all been a great ruse to avoid uh, any kind of uh, exactly. a, a scholarship. Um, Mar Marty, when did you know that things were when did you have a moment of being able to go like, oh, my God, this actually worked out? You know, people have told me it was like a moment when people come out, you know, there's a song comes on the radio or they drive past a billboard and their faces are on. Did you have a moment where you said, oh, my God, this thing has gotten sort of bigger than we could have ever imagined? Uh, the first I Can Love You Better, the first single released on Wide Open Spaces, being on the radio, driving around Dallas and hearing ourselves. I think that was that. Sounds cliche, but that was the moment where I thought, we're on the radio. I, I want to play a song. Um, take, take a listen to this.
That is Traveling Soldier by the Chicks, formerly known as the Dixie Chicks. The song was a gigantic hit. And I, mean, I, was, I was reading reviews of that song pre-2003, which is interesting. And a lot of the conversation around that song was the, the patriotic anthem from the Dixie Chicks, the patriotic song from, from this band. Um, how, did you, how did you feel about your music being labeled as patriotic? Great. <laughs> I feel patriotic. You know, we started the year of the controversy, which was the year that that song came out, um, by singing the national anthem at the Super Bowl. <laughs> Nothing more patriotic than that. So, uh, yeah, kind of ironic uh, <laughs> what happened a couple of months later. Yeah, I mean, it's with a new album every like, you know, every decade or so. It's a it's a nice opportunity to kind of look back on that. And I'm not going to spend that much time on it, but like, how have you reflected back on that on what you call the incident now? Well, I use it as a learning tool for my children, for my daughters, and they watched the documentary recently. And I'd been waiting to find the right moment, the right ages they were going to be. And they they were very confused as to why why the backlash and why the hate and the anger towards us over because I think we're all raising our children to speak your minds and have an opinion and be kind and you know and so yeah they they didn't quite get it I, it feels like that could have happened fifty years ago but it didn't it's you know quite recent in our past but that but we all feel like it was a blessing for our career for us personally it really was it was hard at the moment but we wouldn't change it in in the documentary that comes up because i think natalie you say something in the documentary about how freeing it is when that controversy happened because all of a sudden it sort of cast aside anyone's opinions of you well they already they already hate us we can make whatever kind of music we want right yeah i think we didn't realize that people thought we were a certain way because we played country music or were on uh, country radio. I was just shocked to us that people didn't know who we were. I, I think we felt like uh, people liked us because we were honest and we didn't just like always say, you know, the right thing or the best thing for press or media. Um, and so it was really surprising and it felt gross uh, that people thought, you know, we would not be pro-choice or, you know, for women's rights or uh, peace and love, you know. Um, so it was very freeing to just go, oh, okay, so you liked us, but actually you didn't like us because you thought we were this other thing. <laughs> so now if you like us, then it's, you know, for true reasons, which just felt a lot better. If you, I wonder how it would be handled now, you know, like Emily, like, do you, do you think about how, it feels like we're at a time where people are able to be critical of the president. People are able to be critical. Uh, artists are allowed to be critical of the administration. I, I mean, I want to talk about this a little bit later, but I even saw the Opry, you know, which I would, I would think of as a very conservative institution coming out and saying Black Lives Matter. Um, uh, Emily, do you, do, do you think that uh, it would be handled differently now? Uh, absolutely, but mainly because of just social media. You know, we were kind of pre-social media. And so... Now everybody has a platform. Everybody can have a voice. Um, people are saying what they mean and what they want to say all the time. Um, not necessarily artists, but just people in general. So the, the criticism of an administration or what's going on in the world is just kind of everyday fodder. For us back then, it was, you know, we didn't have the, the fan base, a way for the fan base to kind of counteract what was happening with these groups that were kind of organizing against us. So, um, yeah, I do think it's different. 
these days. It is funny because I, I would normally see social media as sort of like a greater form of polarization. But I like what you're saying there that like had you said what you said back then, you would have had at least some sort of mobilization behind you of fans who would have been able to publicly say their support for the for the band. Right. And, you know, and these days I I feel sorry for anyone on at least on our sites who says something bad about us because our fans just go after them like, uh, like rabid dogs. And so it's <laughs> kind of like we just sit back and watch watch the fray happen. If you're just tuning in, this is Q. I'm Tom Power. My guests are the Chicks, formerly known as the Dixie Chicks, Natalie Maines, Emily Strayer, and Marty McGuire. When you're telling the story of the band, it's impossible not to mention what they refer to as the incident. The incident is where the band was on the latter half of this gigantic world tour. It was a few days before the Iraq War began, and it only took a few seconds on stage to change the trajectory of the rest of their careers. When... Lead singer Natalie Maines said this. It was those 15 words that led to people burning piles of their CDs, radio stations boycotting their music. They even received a death threat. Fast forward three years later, the Chicks come back with a platinum-selling album called Taking the Long Way, and the song Not Ready to Make Nice was everywhere. I asked Natalie how she felt about the release of that song. Yeah, I think for me that like that was done once we had written and completed the record. Like I think that to me would have been the challenge. Like, can we do this? Can we tap into, you know, a lot our songwriting before that had been less personal and more storytelling or telling like a made up story or somebody else's story. And this time we were going to really tap into our lives and our experience. Um, so I just wanted to get that out there and get that done. And Rick Rubin is who, you know, I think was the first person to kind of show us that we could do that. And we had that in us. I mean, he reached out to us to ask if he could produce our next record. And that was amazing to us. We didn't even know he would know who we were. Um, and so it was really awesome to have his encouragement of just telling us, you've got to write about your experience. And, you know, he would say why he reached out to us is because he finally felt like we had something to write about. And he was right. So um, for me, the stakes were just being able to write a whole record or co-write a whole record and do that. And so because of what happened to us, it really wasn't, I mean, it was uh, any, you know, anybody that liked it, that was bonus and that was awesome. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, to go and win five Grammys after all of that was even more awesome, but that wasn't what it was about for us. I don't think, I think it was about the process of writing about that. We'd be early in the stages of writing and he'd say things like, I don't believe you. Like we'd, we'd come with a song and, you know, maybe we'd just, you know, make some stuff up along with the truth and be like, I, I just don't believe you. And so he really forced us to be as blatantly honest as we could. So it leads us to the new record. Song, can you play a clip from that there?
That is The Chicks from their new album, Gaslighter. That's the song, March, March. I, I read today that um, that was one of the hardest songs to write on this new record. I, I wonder if you could tell me why. Marty? <laughs> it was hard because it started out as something completely different. And I think we knew there was a, a great song in there, but we just couldn't squeeze it out of what we had to work with initially. Um, so we kept kind of coming back to it and coming back to it and looking at it from a different way. And Dan Wilson came over to help us finish it. And I'm just so glad we stuck with it and found the right the right thing for this song because I feel like this, with just everything that's happened with this Black Lives Matter movement, I thank God we had had the song. It, it makes the album so much deeper. And and the video is, is is incredibly powerful. I wonder if I wonder if someone could tell me a little bit about the about the the making of the video. We have an amazing um, artistic director named Sean Farmer, um, and she, we had talked about this this idea of showing marches through time um, that all reflected the lyrics, but also reflected what was happening right now. By the end, I was like, I was so emotional, and I would watch it, and that's her genius. It's it's an interesting time, particularly in country music, because you have. As I mentioned earlier, the Opry is releasing statements around Black Lives Matter. Margot Price got on stage the other night and, and said they should invite on on the Opry and said they should invite Anita White, the real Lady A, onto the stage. You even have like you know mainstream top forty country artists like Luke Combs posting black squares and talking about Black Lives Matter. Natalie, does it feel like country music is finally starting to catch up with what you may have been castigated for you know, all these years ago? Well, honestly, you just informed me of all that. I didn't know any of that. I don't keep up with country music or know anything about it. But from what you're telling me right now, it sounds like they are. <laughs> Natalie, if you could tell me, the last time I heard you before this record was on the on the Taylor Swift record on Soon You'll Get Better. And I, I did feel like I saw a, a kinship here between you, you know, as, as, as not to get into the country music thing again, but as artists that have struggled with country music, the country music industry have been told to sound a certain way, have defied that and have sort of carved their own path. Did you see a kinship there between, between you, Goose? Yeah, Taylor's great. Um, she talks a lot about how we inspired her. So, you know, that um, is awesome because you think of all the people that, inspired you when you were young and starting in this business and we didn't get to do that song with her lot you know in the Mm -hmm. studio with her um she knew we were working with jack and jack had produced a lot of that record of hers um so we just you know paused what we were doing on our record one day and put our stuff down on her song soon you'll get But yeah, she's uh, she's awesome. She makes us proud. <laughs> I can tell, and, and and that's sort of like a theme I hear on the record is that there's, you know, be, being an example, becoming an example, becoming you know, uh, uh, people are growing up with your band, inspiring them to play music who are now fully professionally playing music. And I thought one of the more more um, moving parts of the record was towards the end, where on a song that it sounds like you're giving advice, you know, and and Marty and Emily's daughters are named. And I guess I wanted to close things off by going to Marty and Emily and, and asking, what do you hope they hear in this record? Well, there's a lot of stuff I don't want them to hear. And it's, you know, it's hard for our kids to see us not be 
parental and perfect. And, you know, it's, I remember that age, it was probably around 12 or 13 where I realized my, my parents had flaws and they made mistakes. Yeah. And, and now they're old enough. I feel like where we can talk to them about the fact that we make mistakes and just cause there are mistakes it doesn't mean that we've passed any particular trait down you, um, you're going to make your own mistakes and you have your great qualities that maybe I don't even possess. And, and that song young man and Julian are, are kind of to the, all the kids, um, trying to express that, that you're your own person. And, and yeah, we have a little bit of wisdom being, you know, 45 and 50, you know, that we can pass down, but they're going to have to find their own way. Emily, how about you? Um, you know, like a love letter to them to just kind of say, God, if I could go back and tell my own self, you know, all these things like these, these little things don't matter. Just, just stick with it, you know? And so I did love that idea of taking your own heartbreak and turning it around to, to teach a younger generation. Well, boys, I, I can't begin to tell you how, how much I I was looking forward to talking to you and um, what, what a fan I am and what a fan we all are of here. You know, each of us in our office, we're talking about the different places in Canada that we come from. And what we all seem to have in common was that your music meant an awful lot to us at a certain time in our wow. lives. That's Thank you. So it's so nice to have you back. Um, and, and thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Bye. Thanks so much. You're such a That is The Chicks and Gaslighter. You'll find that on their new album by the same name. It's their first record of 14 years, and it's out now. Just before that, you heard my conversation with The Chicks there. Natalie Maines, Marnie McGuire, and Emily Strayer. I just posted up a photo of all of us. Well, I guess all of us over Zoom. On my Instagram, at Tom Joe Power. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. Here are some stories we're looking at for you today. Kanye West's bid for the U.S. presidential election has been pretty unconventional so far, and his first rally launching his presidential campaign in South Carolina wasn't much different. Kanye appeared without a microphone, often yelling at the crowd to quiet down so he could hear questions from his audience, who also had no mic. At one point, Kanye breaks down in tears talking about abortion, and people are pretty upset over his impromptu monologue about Harriet Tubman. Take a listen. Well, Harriet Tubman never actually freed the slaves. She just had the slaves go work for other white people. Kanye's comment has stirred up a lot of outrage online, but on the other side of this, a lot of people see Kanye's behavior as a cry for help. Jamal Crawford of the Brooklyn Nets tweeted, We need to pray for Kanye. All of these outbursts, all these years, he's screaming for help. Sound Off by Critical Frequency, hosted by longtime music journalist Katie Henriksen, brings you in-depth interviews with musicians whose work defies categorization. Katie has licensed full songs from her guests, so listening to the show feels like listening to great music with the backstory woven in between songs. You can listen to Sound Off 
wherever you get your podcasts. David Tennant does a podcast with From Something Else is back for another season. David sits down virtually with the biggest names in entertainment, including Dame Judi Dench, Jim Parsons, Elizabeth Moss, and more. You'll get an inside look at these stars' lives with revealing conversations, surprising stories, and of course, lots of laughs. New episodes of David Tennant Does a Podcast With, available every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Tom Power. Not that long ago, the cartoonist Adrian Tomina thought he was going to die. I don't mean that in a general existential way. Adrian Tomina was lying alone in a hospital room, convinced that death was imminent. So he started to reflect on his life and some context. Well, Adrian was 16 when he started publishing comics. He's an illustrator for the magazine The New Yorker. He's considered a giant in his field. But that particular day, none of that really mattered at all. And neither did well a lot of the things he used to stress about. I'm very happy to report that Adrian is 46 now, very much still alive. And he reflects on this experience in his brand new book, The Loneliness of the Long Distance Cartoonist. Adrian Tomina is on the line from Brooklyn in New York. Hi, how are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to have you. Welcome to the show. So take me back to that day. Um, what, what made you think you were going to die? Well, it was um, pain in the chest, elevated heart rate dizziness, all these, all these symptoms that I had always associated with heart attack. You know, um, I called into my doctor and without even hearing any more detail than what I just gave you, they said, get to an emergency room right now. You know, I think often when we're near death, uh, oh, I mean, not that I've ever been near death, but you know, often <laughs> when we're, we're given the idea that when people are near death, they, they're very calm, they're very enlightened, their life sort of passes before their eyes. What was going through your mind? Well, I guess, you know, outwardly, I probably did seem fairly calm. I had to, <laughs> I had to put on a little bit of a charade because I was uh, with my kids at the time and my wife was at work and I didn't want to freak them out. So I had to just act as if nothing was wrong, you know, so there was no uh, outward uh, panic, but um, my mind was, was racing for sure. And, uh, you know, my main concern was that if I was going to die, I didn't want to do it in front of them without their mom <laughs> being around to help them. How, how old were you at this time? This was just a couple years ago. So you were like in your early 40s? Yeah. And, yeah. and if you don't mind me asking, what was, what was the diagnosis? What, 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 what had you gone through? After something like 12 hours in the hospital, the takeaway was uh, we think it's a combination of anxiety mm. and acid reflux and uh, these things, uh, a little bit of, um, what do they call it? White, white coat syndrome that like being in the hospital actually makes the symptoms worse because of the, the stress. And so it was never, you know, it, it's not like they found the, the germs floating in me and identified them. You know, it was, it was a diagnosis and they, they, they made an approximation and, and uh, you know, I, it seems to be correct as far as I can tell. You know, I, I think it's, I think it's, it's sadly relatively common for people who are exhibiting their first ever panic attacks or their first symptoms of anxiety attacks to think they're, they're having a stroke and they think that they're, you know, they're having a heart attack or they think that they're dying. I mean, I, I, I've certainly been there. But what I find interesting about your story is when you're in the hospital, you've had all this incredible success in the world of cartooning at a very hmm. young age. Work wasn't on your mind at all. Was that, right. well, why was that so surprising for you? Just because I have 
lived my life with sort of uh, an idealized vision of, of what it means to be an artist and uh, the, the life priorities that that entails, you know, kind of always having your art on your mind at all times while you get through all the mundane aspects of, of real life. And so I had sort of assumed, I didn't think it would come that early, but I assumed that there would be some point in my life where I'd be in a hospital and they'd say, it's not looking good. This is the end. And suddenly my mind would flash to all the different books, the, the comics that I, I didn't get to finish, or, or maybe the one that I was working on at that moment. And I'd go into this panic and, you know, my top priority would be to get in touch with other cartoonists who I thought could complete my vision or, <laughs> or something like that, you know, heaven forbid that the world misses out on one more book from me. <laughs> You're like, you were like Mozart, you know? Yeah, I right. understand, you know, <laughs> uh, but, but was it comforting to know? that that wasn't what crossed your mind? Because the difference between thinking you're dying and dying is, is almost negligible, like in terms right. of your mind, right? So was it comforting to know that in your last, quote unquote, last moments, you weren't? Well, for me, the realization was that I was not as much of a devoted artist as I always thought I was, and that I felt good about it, that I felt actually really <laughs> relieved. That was my, my reaction to, to think about things like my, my wife and my family and my parents more than a graphic novel. Um, in the beginning of the book, you start off with you kind of in your classroom as a child telling the students uh, <laughs> all the comic books that you're into and then sort of <laughs> bullying you for it. Let's go back even before that. When did you first get interested in or even just kind of fall in love with comics? It predates my memory. I mean, there's, there's photos of me looking at comic books and trying to draw comic books long before my uh, memory had clicked on. I've got a, a older brother who's eight years older than me, who was a comic book fan. And so um, they were just always around from, from before my birth. They were just sort of a natural part of my surroundings. And then you end up pretty early on in your life making a, a, a widely renowned comic. When you're 16 years old, you started self-publishing a comic series called Optic Nerve. What did that involve? How did you, how did you get it out? Well, it wasn't widely renowned at that point. It was, uh, well, I mean, it was widely renowned amongst my parents and, and brother. But, um, <laughs> maybe it's become, you know, maybe I mean, it's become sort of legendary now, you know? Yeah. 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 I mean, the first, the first print run of, of, of that iteration was, was 25 and, uh, <laughs> you know, three went to my family members and, and the rest <laughs> sat in my drawer. But, uh, you know, th that was the pre-internet days of, of self-publishing where I would do little comics in a, in a sketchbook and, and take them to a, a copy shop and basically kind of hand assemble little, little pamphlets. The equivalent now would be posting it online. And um, this was the very primitive version of that. So eventually you do get your big break and your new publisher sends you on this book tour, which sounds very exciting and very glamorous. And there's the scene where you and the sort of legendary Canadian cartoonist Seth are going to a signing and no one really shows up. I wonder if you could just pick up the story there for us. Sure. It was, uh, it was a, a small comic shop. You know, basically the owner was running the whole show. He picked us up from the train station and drove us to the store. Uh, I mean, essentially, it's just a, it's a, a zero turnout. It's one of those things where you're <laughs> sitting there alone, looking at the door, just waiting for anyone to come in and, and no one was showing up. And, uh, it was just kind of a deafening silence. I was looking at Seth and we'd look over and across the room, the store owner was sitting at the cash register, kind of looking at us. I mean, eventually we wanted to call it off. I think we actually said like, well, why don't we just call it a night? And he said, no, 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 you know, don't give up hope. And shortly thereafter, he went into the back office, closed the door. He didn't realize that 
the door was not at all soundproof and we could hear him very clearly calling his, I believe they were his housemates on the phone and saying like, oh yeah, it's, it's way worse than expected. Like mm. there's no, no one here. You guys got to get down here. And then shortly thereafter, the door opened up and a small group of people about the same age as the store owner walked in and robotically asked us to sign copies, <laughs> copies of our books with no real apparent interest in us or the books at all. It's a powerful yet like sad and very funny story, I think. And yeah, I mean, in in the end, I I, I thought it was kind of a sweet gesture yeah. on, on on the store owner's part, you know. Yeah, I uh, I you are also quite candid in this book about the racism you've you've experienced in your career as a cartoonist, including from from like people who are fans of yours. Yeah, um, it, it's a it's a hard topic to to get into, I think, because the scale of it is so. It's so subtle. What, what I'm depicting is not the kind of overt discrimination or assault or, or anything like that. Um, and it's more the little hints that you get that someone else might, you know, you relate to in terms of the workplace where it's um, a coworker or a peer have a turn of phrase or, or, or something like that. That just is enough to, to remind you that you're not one of them or, or you're different or something like that. I guess I guess the question that was sticking out to me while I really enjoyed reading the book, you know, between the shows where or the signings where no one would show up or the, the you know, the, the, as you said, the subtle racism you were dealing with or even and I'm not giving away too much here, like the gastro gastrointestinal <laughs> distress you get while out for a walk with somebody. Mm-hmm. There's these are hard moments, you know, uh, at, least, at least cringeworthy moments in your life. What made you want to relive these? Because I've been doing this kind of work in some form or another since I was a kid, I've set myself up in this situation where whenever anything negative happens to me, inevitably some well-meaning friend or family member or acquaintance who says, oh, well, it's all good material, isn't it? Inside, I'm like seething with rage going, that that really doesn't help right now. <laughs> but um, in a way, they, they were right. Uh, similar to all the work I've done in comics, it's it's some very subconscious way to make my life feel less meaningless and to take negative experiences and try and get some sort of mastery over them to show that I can now laugh at things that once made me cry, you know. Um, it's It's been a joy to talk to you. Before we go, if this is too personal, let me know. But I wanted to go back to that day that you were in the hospital and you thought you were going to die. And we were talking earlier about how you didn't think about your work, but you did think about your daughter's. Before we go, if you don't mind, what, what did you want to say to them? Well, there's, a, there's a, a part in the book at that moment where I'm lying on a stretcher and I uh, think there's a chance that maybe I, maybe I won't see them again. Maybe I'm going to die in the hospital before I get to see them. So I pull out my sketchbook and write a long note to them. And it's, it's kind of what you'd expect. It's, it's a lot of things that I probably should have said to them in person on a, on a more regular basis. Um, but I wanted to have in writing, um, you know, I think there's a lot of blather. It goes on and on. It's a, <laughs> it's, a, it's a whole page, but I think one of the things to me, the most important thing that it arrives at is just that to tell them that I love them. And more importantly, that I like who they are as people. Um, and that I hope that they look out for each other throughout their lives. Uh, and then of course I, quickly rip the page out of my book and throw it away because I think it's too <laughs> sadistic in a way to like uh, stick them with this uh, mawkish note from beyond the grave or something like that. Sure, but they'll, they'll read it. 
You know, they yeah. can. Yeah. Well, that's then, the twist. And th- the th- twist is that I threw I threw the real note away, but then I published it in a book, which uh, they'll eventually read. That must be meaningful to you that that one day they'll be able to read that. It is. I mean, my my older daughter has already read it. Um, she was actually she was the first audience for this book because she was reading it each day as I as I progressed. Um, How did she react? And, well, <laughs> you know, not surprisingly, her her interest in my work increased exponentially once she appeared in the narrative as, <laughs> as a character. And then the notes started coming in uh, and, the, and the, the, the critiques and the fact-checking, a lot of fact-checking from, from a 10-year-old, <laughs> mainly about whether or not her hair was parted in the middle or on the side <laughs> at that time in her life. And uh, I think she uh, absorbed it to a degree. Um, uh, it, it, it's hard to say. I, and I'll, I also think that the book serves as a, as a chance for me to express some things to my wife as well that um, maybe are hard for me to say in person. And so there's a scene towards the end where I think she's lying in bed listening to me and she's actually fallen asleep. And it's this chance where the, the, the character of me just gets to, to monologue and, and really kind of open his heart up in a way that uh, I'd probably find uncomfortable. My wife would probably find uncomfortable, but it does feel good to have it in writing now. Well, yeah, it's, it's, it, it certainly does. And, and that certainly comes across. And, um, you know, I think sometimes when you have those moments where you have to sort of reevaluate your life and then you get to live what a, what a gift that really is and can be for your life. It's been such a joy talking to you. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Adrian Tomina's graphic novel is out tomorrow. It's called The Loneliness of a Long Distance Cartoonist. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. For Hamza Hawk, everything changed when he started saying no. Hamza is a Canadian actor. He's also Pakistani. And for a while, the roles he'd get offered were pretty one note. They were bit parts like cab drivers, convenience store owners, terrorists, lots of terrorists. Hamza played these parts, but then he started turning them down. And now he's starring in the show Transplant. He's playing a doctor. And finally, he says he gets to play not only a good guy, but actually just a fully formed character at all with complications and hopes and fears. I got into all of that with Hamza. The Hawk when I spoke with him, and I started by asking about his character, Bashir Hamed. When we first meet him, he's working in a kitchen. On the day, um, the uh, head physician or the attending physician of York, or our fictional York Memorial Hospital in Toronto, is dining at the, uh, at, at the Harissa restaurant, and there's a horrible crash. Now, little did everybody know that A, there was going to be a crash, but B, that their, um, that their cook was a uh, trained trauma surgeon uh, back in uh, war-torn Syria. And he ended up uh, saving a bunch of people's lives, including that of Dr. Jed Bishop, played by John Hanna. And as a result, um, he's given the opportunity to become a first-year resident as, uh, as an exception is made for the fact that his credits don't transfer over from his qualifications in Syria. So even though he gets this dream job or the dream job that he already had, he still has to face some tough realities. Uh, take a listen to this. This is a clip of your character, Bash, talking to his little sister who fled Syria with him. I'll rent a room somewhere else and you can stay with Anisha at least until we think of something else. No. Baby, I know this isn't what we wanted, but uh, this way you're close to school and uh, you have help. And I'm sorry, but you, you have to understand. I don't care where we go, Bash, but please... We have to go together. 
So, I mean, Hamza, this is from a recent episode. You have, you know, the hospital needing some kind of documentation for his pay, which hasn't come in mm-hmm. yet. You can't pay. You can't pay your rent. They get kicked out of their apartment. And you mentioned earlier, you know, that he was a trained doctor. He's unable to be a doctor in his in his new home. This show feels like it's reflective of the the problems that um, uh, immigrants to Canada can face, ones that people might not know as much about. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, as you know, as wonderful as many of the resources are offered here in Canada, uh, you know, both objectively and in comparison to a lot of other countries, um, it doesn't discount the fact that it's still, um, it's still a massive struggle for a lot of people who, who, you know, choose who come here either by choice or, or, or they're forced to as a, as a result of circumstance. So um, I'm happy that they decided to tackle some of these things uh, because I personally have not seen a, a show beforehand that, that, you know, wanted to talk about that. I mean, your own family came to Canada from Saudi Arabia when you were nine. Is this story yes. reflective of your parents' story? Can, can you see any of their story in it? Um, to us, to a certain degree, um, you know, I've always, uh, oftentimes in, in, in interviews, people make the mistake of, of um, referring to, to Bash as an immigrant of, over a refugee. And, 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 uh, and I find, uh, you know, the analogy I've always made is the fact that, you know, it's the difference between going skydiving and being thrown out of a plane and finding your parachute on your way down. Um, and, you know, my parents chose to come here. They did a lot of work. We had family here before. Um, when I first visited in 1996, I think my dad filed all the paperwork for immigration then, and it usually takes a couple of years. Um, so when we moved in 2000, um, all, everything was you know ready. My my dad still worked in Saudi Arabia for about six to eight months until you know he was coming and going until he landed a job. But you know then the tech bubble burst in 2003. That you know that whole Nortel Alcatel thing that went down and 75,000 Canadians lost their jobs. And, um, you know, he found himself unemployed and he was a, you know, he's an electrical engineer. My mother's has a master's in organic chemistry. And, and here we are in 2003 and my parents are raising four kids, two of them who are about to go into university and, um, you know, just doing whatever they can. My dad was working for a lawn care company and my mother was, she was working a couple jobs. She was working as a a telemarketer from home as well as a, she was working at a, a, a deli at, uh, you know, your local grocery store and um, all, all to make sure that we had a proper education, which was the impetus to come here in the first place. So, um, it, you know, it's uh, I can appreciate that. Um, I can appreciate their struggle. And uh, that that element of it was very personal for me. Um, they must be proud of you. I'm equally as proud of them. It's It's interesting to hear you talk about the difference between... Uh, someone who's an immigrant to a country and someone who's a refugee, especially in the context of this show. And, mm-hmm. you know, it, it brings to mind you know, some some things that I, I you've been open talking about, which is that the show originally um, tried to cast a Syrian actor in the role you play. I mean, you're Pakistani-Canadian. Can you tell me more about that? Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, you know, we live in an era of, of representation and, and um, you know, everybody tries to do their best uh, or... This was a, a, a this was a circumstance rather of of a production company and a and a and a show that was trying to do their best to to cast the best person for the job. So though I was in talks early uh, to star, um, 
you know, uh, room had to be made and a, a sincere effort had to be made to have somebody of Syrian descent to play the character. Now, I've stated and I'll state again that I was fortunate enough that they just couldn't find the guy who I know <laughs> can do this 10 times better than I can. Right. Uh, so, um, you know, given the time constraint and, and whatever, I think it was about a two month casting period. Uh, and then after that, uh, they opened it up to uh, other uh, uh, p- people of Middle Eastern and South Asian descent, which is when I uh, formally did my audition as well. And I was fortunate to, to get the call. And what's the story here? Like you ended up getting a personal trainer who was from Syria who helped you out or something? Yeah, it was really so. I had I had a I had a language coach and a dialect coach. Like I tried my best to like learn Arabic, but uh, you know I can. I can read it. I can write it because I grew up in Saudi. I'm Muslim. So, you know, our, you know, the Quran is, is all written in Arabic and we, um, I have some experience with it, but uh, I'm not fluent at all. So I hired a coach to try to learn Arabic, which proved all too difficult given all the, uh, all the other work that I had to do, but I, I, I gave it a sincere effort. And then I also had a dialect coach to try to learn the Syrian dialect as well, which we ended up ha- finding a happy medium between you know, Bash's experience and an authentic original Aleppo accent. Um, but I had, you know, because I was, it was about two months of like not knowing if I was going to get the part or anything. I kind of just forgot about it and I just gained a bunch of weight, uh, just like <laughs> eating ice cream and chicken wings every day. Yeah. And I was about, I was about 25 pounds heavier. Um, and I just didn't think that that reflected Bash's character once I got the call. So I literally Googled, uh, best personal trainer in Toronto, which is where I was living at the time. And uh, of, of this top this top 10, there was a gentleman named Ziad. And I was like, okay, cool. Like, um, you know, I'll hire this guy. He seems, you know, he seems like he's a, he's a brown guy. So I wanted to give him my business. And, um, you know, just about three weeks in, I mentioned to him, you know, what the character was and, and, uh, cause the show hadn't been announced yet. So I wasn't really allowed to say anything, but I'm, I'm not really great at following those guidelines. And, um, I mentioned it to him and he was just so happy. And I was just like, bro, like, you know, that's, that's really cool that you're happy about that. He's, he's like, he was like, no, bro, I'm from Aleppo. Like I left in 2010, no right before the war. And I was living in Lebanon and stuff. And this is amazing. So he started teaching me a couple of, colloquialisms and most of which I would never be allowed to say on camera. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, it was just this, uh, lovely, uh, happy coincidence that, uh, that my trainer that, that, you know, that I'd reached out to happened to be from the same region that my character was supposed to be. I want to play one more clip before we go. Take a listen to this. Page cardiology, wide complex tachycardia. Let's start an amiodarone infusion. You know, I, th- I that's a lot of medical ease you had to learn there in addition to learning uh, uh, Arabic, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, so are you <laughs> it's an interesting show for it to come out right now while we think so deeply about hospitals like obviously there's been shows mm-hmm. about hospitals in the past there's been you know you know ER and Chicago Hope and all that I mean it's, it's a, it's a mm-hmm. bit of a trope but I don't know I, I feel like we're all looking at hospitals differently now through COVID-19 does it feel like an interesting yeah. time for your show to come out yeah I mean nobody could have predicted this right um, and I think the fact that the uh, essential workers and doctors and you know nurses and any medical staff or anybody who works at a hospital right now is getting getting their due credit and uh, you know they're being they're getting the spotlight both like in in terms of entertainment and uh, on a on a socio-political level which is uh, which is truly warranted. Hey, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. 
Hamza Hawk is the star of the show Transplant. You can stream it at ctv.ca. Shortly after I spoke with Hamza Hawk, NBC announced that it's picked up Transplant to air this fall. That is it for the show today. Tomorrow on the show, Emma Donahue, the uh, famous Canadian writer who most famously wrote the novel Room, which became a, a, a gigantic Hollywood film. She has a new book, which is about, well, in some ways, about the 1918 flu pandemic. And she finished writing it just a couple of days before COVID-19 was designated a pandemic. So lots to talk about. I might ask her for lottery numbers, maybe. All right, we'll see you then. Later on. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.